0: So, Jesus, uh, help us to understand that scripture. Uh, be with us in these next few minutes to change us, to be like you. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, hello to all you here at 945, Those of you watching at home online, as well as those at our 11 o'clock service, our middle schoolers, high schoolers, thank you all for joining us. Happy Mother's Day to all you mothers and all of you who have ever had a mother. Happy Mother's Day to all of you. Uh, in my opinion, Uh, One of the great villains of U.S. history is this guy. His name is George McClellan. He was the first commander of the Northern Army in the Civil War. And again and again, he refused to attack, even though he vastly outnumbered the Confederate Army. At one point, he even had Robert E. Lee's battle plans, knew every move the South would make, massively outnumbered them, still he wouldn't attack. Prompting Lincoln to say, if General McClellan does not want to use the Army, I should like to borrow it. There were many, many times the war would have been over if he had only attacked, but he didn't, and as a result, it dragged on for years, hundreds of thousand people died who did not have to because he wouldn't move. And what's even more infuriating is it never affected his ego. He said Lincoln didn't know what he was doing, called him the original gorilla. He said, if, if I were running the war, which, oh, by the way, he was, we'd win, right? And then he, was, he said he told his wife, the country will someday make me a dictator because of my great skill, like just off the charts, right? The wonder is, why did it take Lincoln so long to sack this lily-livered, cowardly, craven, gutless, spineless, homunculus of a human being? <laughs> Other than that, I have no opinion. One of the weird... Th- One of the weird things about me is that I have very passionate feelings about historical people like McClellan or like Elizabeth I of England, as I've told you before, because she was so smart and brave and strong and awesome. She'd have won that war in a week. Oh, Liz, sweetheart, talk to me, you're just... (laughs) (sighs) But I digress. Now, it's possible my assessment of McClellan is overstated a little. Uh, People thought he was the picture of action. He created an army out of nothing. Uh, his men loved him because they never had to fight. It was just like a long camping trip, right? (laughs) But he was all hat and no cattle. Paralyzed, victim of inertia, knew what he had to do, but would not do it. Not so different from me and maybe you. Because often I know what I need to do to make something better, relationship, job, whatever. I know what I need to do to make something better, but I don't do it. Jesus asked me, do you want to have better relationships with the people you work with or your neighbors or any of that? And I said, well, yeah, but not if it means that I can't always be right. My, you know, Jesus says, do you want life to be more of an adventure? And I say, yeah, unless it takes me out of my comfort zone. Do you want to break that bad habit? Well, not if I have to stop doing it, I don't, right? What's the point of that? Again and again, Jesus says to us, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Really? We're doing a sermon series on things that take time to develop. One of which, as I said last week, is just emotional, spiritual, social, relational growth. Growth takes time. But sometimes it takes longer than it needs to because we get stuck. We say, I can't do this or that, right? I'm stuck. But what we really mean is I won't. So what seems stalled in your life right now? What is stalled? Is it career? Is it school? Is it a relationship? Spiritual growth? What seems stalled in your life right now? And the story that Rich just read for us shows us how we get unstuck. But not only that, how we stay unstuck. Because it's not a once and for all. You have to do it over and over again. So the story starts out... Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. Aram is basically Syria. Syria and Israel were always at war. Syria always won because they were stronger. So Naaman here, the captain of the Syrian army, is the hated enemy. And this story shows again and again, like so much of the Bible, that God's love is for everyone, even the people we think are enemies. And it says he was a great man, highly regarded. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Three times it emphasizes his success, right? Great man, highly regarded, valiant warrior. He's got power, wealth, reputation, big man on campus, all of which is a setup for the next word, which is but. But he had leprosy. And this is the first clue for how we get unstuck and continue to grow, and that is to give up self-sufficiency for the all-sufficient grace of Jesus. Because there are some things we can't do in our own. We need supernatural help from God. Naaman had everything, but he had leprosy, which we don't know what that means. It could have been any, any skin disease or even a flesh-eating bacteria or something like that. But the point is, no matter how successful, popular, wealthy, good-looking we are, right? there's always a but. M- maybe it's an illness. Maybe you get laid off. Maybe a significant relationship breaks up. Maybe it's something inside of us, you know, a a, a settled resentment, a deep down insecurity that we just can't get rid of. No matter how accomplished we are, there's always a but. Everyone has a but. This is just a biblical truth, okay? (laughs) As accomplished as Naaman was, he has to learn that for some things we need supernatural help. So his slave girl says to him, there's a prophet named Elisha in Israel who can help you. So Naaman asks the king if he can go, and the king says, by all means, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. In other words, he takes his credentials, his, his connections, his wealth, his power, he's turning to the things of this world, his own accomplishments, to fix him, when what he really needs is Jesus. And we do this in a lot of ways. Sometimes you know, we think if I just try harder, then I will be able to break that bad habit. Or we think if, I, if I, we can buy a sense of self-worth by getting great grades or go to a great college or have a great job, then people will like us. But no matter how much we try, we still wonder, do they really like me, do they really, right? The natural ways aren't working. So what we need is supernatural love and power of Jesus. Which brings me to the second way to get unstuck. Sometimes the greatest obstacle to your future thriving is your current success. Sometimes the greatest obstacle to your future thriving is your greatest success, because we get afraid to let go of it. Right? And you see this in businesses, you see this in churches. For instance, often the people who are most resistant to innovation, most resistant to doing a new thing, are the people who succeeded in the old thing. Because they don't want to let go right, of their, of their success. So businesses and churches get stuck because people are afraid to risk their current success for something greater. And, and they just try to preserve what they've got. The last words of any dying organization, we've never done it that way before, right? As it was in 1960, is now and ever shall be, right? But here's the thing, what got you here may not get you there. What worked then may not work now. And what didn't work yesterday may actually work today. Experience is great, but it's also a synonym for baggage. And that's one of the reasons I like to have young people in my life, because they ask great questions. How can we do it this way? Because we've always done it. Oh, that sounds bad. Maybe there's a different way to do it. And we do this on a personal level as well, right? So when I taught college, uh, most of my students I had, that I had were stress cases because they couldn't say no to anything. Because the way you get into college these days is to jam pack your resume with all kinds of stuff, right? I, I was captain of the soccer team and president of the Taekwondo club and chairperson of the Swedish hula committee and you know, all this stuff, right? I mean, this is the stress our youth experience. So when my students got to college, they couldn't give it up because that's what, quote, had made them successful, right? And so their their, their health suffered, their relationships, certainly their faith suffered. They couldn't let go of current success for something greater. So in this story, Naaman faces a series of what he considers downward steps that force him to let go of his success for something bigger. So first, he has to go to a prophet for healing, not a king. The king says, I can't help you. For Naaman, this is a downward step. He always deals with kings, not measly little prophets, right? But then it gets worse. What happens when he goes to the prophet? It says this, Elisha sent a messenger. What? Like he's Naaman, right? What do you mean? I, don't, I mean, I can't even talk to the king. At least I could talk to the prophet. I get the prophet's messenger, right? And then the messenger says, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored. And this was too much for Naaman. He refused. And it says, Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that the prophet would surely come out to me and call in the name of the Lord his God and wave his hands over the spot and cure my leprosy. I just love that. And where's the hocus pocus? You know, like, come on, man. Where's the magic? I deserve a big miracle. Do you know who I am? I am flipping Naaman. Come out, wave your hands and cure me. I'm not going to wash in your stupid, muddy little creek. Are not, the, are not Abana and far of the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters in Israel? So he turned and went off in a rage. Like not even just ticked, right? Like a rage. So then his servant says to him, well, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? See, Naaman was expecting to be sent to do some great military conquest or something because that's how he always is successful. That's what he knows, Right? Uh, But washing the Jordan, right, like that, that anyone can do that. That doesn't set me off as a big man. Anyone can do thieves can get washed, criminals can get washed, white-collar criminals can get washed, prostitutes can get washed. Any idiot can do that, and that's the point. The thief, Naaman, same thing. It's called grace. You can't earn it. But Naaman can't let go of his image of himself as a success, right? And doesn't want to wash in this river because that might make him look foolish. He wants Elisha to treat him on the basis of his success. But Elisha forces him to lay that aside for God's bigger miracle. This would be like if some CEO came to the church and said, I have to speak to the senior pastor right now. And I sent out my assistant to say, Scott says, go to Eastern Washington and wash in the Tushy River and you'll be cleansed, Right? And y'all don't even know where the Tushi River is, do you? See, that's the problem with our schools these days. They're not teaching the important stuff of geography, right? Naaman is consistently forced to lay aside his success in order to have something bigger, but he won't do it. And the result is no power, no healing, he's stuck. This was actually George McClellan's problem. Right? He was afraid to attack for fear that he might lose and then no longer be considered successful. Recently, someone asked me, what have you learned in your years of ministry? What do you do differently now than when you first started in ministry? And I said, well, now I work hard to stay incompetent. And he said, that's not what I thought you would say. And I said, when I didn't know what I was doing, it was actually easier to be brave because, you know, I figured I was going to get fired anyway, so might as well just go out in a bang, right? And I had less to lose, right? Now I have a mortgage and my oldest daughter is going off to college and holy cow, that's expensive, Right? Back then I was forced to cling to Jesus because I didn't know what I was doing, and now the terrible temptation is to think that I do. And so I work hard at staying incompetent. And fortunately, I am aided and abetted by my natural ineptness, (laughs) right? Which provides all these reminders that I'm not competent. Uh, Recently, I'd written a draft of a sermon, and I said to my wife, I think this is the worst sermon I've ever written. And she said, well, good to get it over with then, right? (laughs) The next day I gave it to the sermon review team that critiques my sermons to make them better and I recounted that conversation with my wife and one of the guys in the team said, if it's any comfort, this isn't the one that's your worst sermon. <laughs> so apparently that one has already happened. So it's just little things like that are there to remind me I am not competent. I gotta cling to Jesus. These thorns in my side are a grace. These thorns in my side are a grace because they remind me to hang on to Jesus whose all-sufficient grace can do more than I can ever do. I know a very successful businessman who was an alcoholic and it was wrecking his marriage, wrecking his family and he decided to go to AA. But the only group he could find that worked with his schedule was in this rundown part of the city that he lived in. So he shows up, drives there in his fancy car, shows up in his designer suit, right, walks in and it's all homeless men. And he thought, I'm not one of these people. And then this thought in his head said, oh yes you are, sit down. And he said, it was the first time I felt loved by Jesus. Tough love, but a real and genuine love. And so he sat down and he said, my name is so and so and I'm an alcoholic and I don't wanna be. And from there he began to change and was able to quit drinking. He had to surrender though, his image of himself as Mr. Successful, humble himself for something greater which brings me to the third way to get unstuck, and that is do what Jesus says, even if it seems foolish, which I know is a duh, but we don't do it, right? Naaman wants to be healed, but his way, not God's way. Washing in the Jordan seems foolish to him, and I do this sometimes. Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere, except there. Jesus, fix me any way you wanna fix me, except that way. And no, not that way either, Jesus. No, how about this way, Jesus? So in order to grow, we've got to do what he says, trusting he designed us so he knows better what will help us to thrive. So we don't say, Jesus, I see in the Bible that if I forgive people, then I won't be consumed by anger. I see you say in the Bible that if I love my spouse the way that you instruct me to love my spouse, I'll have an awesome marriage. I'll take that under advisement, Jesus, I'll consider it. Right? No, to grow, we have to do what he says. We'll make mistakes, we'll screw up, But as I said last week, the goal here is not perfection, it's movement in the right direction. And part of why we are afraid to really follow Jesus, really, is because we worry, well, what if Jesus tells me to do something I don't wanna do? Well, of course he will. Right, like how else is he gonna change us? Right, lots of people want Jesus to give them a life-changing experience without actually wanting to change the way they live. His commands will not crush you. He was crushed for you. They will set you free. Rely on Jesus, surrender your success, do what he says to do, and then fourth, let someone else be the hero of your story. If you ask the question, who's the hero in this story? It's not Naaman, it's not Elisha, it's the slave girl. It's the slave girl who had been captured in a military raid against Israel and carted off into slavery. She's the wrong race in that culture. She's a woman in a patriarchal society. She's young in a culture that reveres age. And who would have been responsible for all of that suffering in her life? Naaman, the general of the Syrian army. And yet how did she respond? When she heard that he had a wasting skin disease, Right. she didn't say, oh good. Yay, the big man has leprosy. Another finger fell off today, hallelujah, right? (laughs) She didn't say that. She says says to Naaman, (laughs) that's a little weird, but she said, (laughs) Rich keeps laughing, which is making me laugh. She, (laughs) She says to Naaman's wife, if only my master would see the prophet in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. That's the voice of genuine compassion. But not only that, amazing courage. Because all the forces of intimidation were arrayed against her, but she found her voice and made a difference so that we are studying her 3,000 years later. She's the hero. See, Naaman expected healing to come from the grand and the powerful, like the king or something like that. But it came through the courage of a slave girl. She's the Christ figure in this story. She forgives Naaman just as Jesus forgives us when we made him a slave and crucified him. And to Naaman's credit, he listens to her. See, because God is always sending us messages to help us grow, but sometimes we ignore them because we don't think they come from the right people to instruct us. In my life, I have grown by things CEOs have said to me, but also six-year-old kids and homeless people, critical comments that at first hurt, but eventually I had to admit, yeah, these are right. God sends us all kinds of messages, but we often don't listen. Pastor John Ortberg talks about how one night he and his wife were in bed and their smoke alarm went off. So John did what I do in that situation. He got up and he took the battery out. Because <laughs> uh, that's how you fix it, right? And went to bed and he said, you know, when the, when the battery's almost out, you know, the smoke alarm beeps. And his wife said, are you sure that it's the battery? And John said, let's just think about decision making for a minute. Okay, do you smell any smoke? Do you feel any heat? There's no fire. Well, the next day his wife called him at work and said, you might want to come home, our house is on fire. (laughs) Because it turns out there was a bird nest in their chimney that had been smoldering all night and it charred one wall before the fire department could put it out. And John said that night when he and his wife went to bed in the hotel where they had to stay, right, his wife said, John, let's just think about decision making for a minute. (laughs) John said she had to say it very loudly so that John could hear it from the sofa where he was sleeping. He didn't listen to her. God often sends us messages, but we've got to listen, even if they come from people that we don't think are the right source. Rely on Jesus, surrender your success, do what he says, let someone else be the hero, and finally, you've got to keep at it. The end of this story is that Naaman's servant finally convinces him to wash in the Jordan seven times, and everyone goes, well, what's the seven? What's the significance of that? It could be lots of things. Maybe each time he got in, he was washing something off, First time washed off anger, second time washed off pride, right? But I think one of the main things that seven says is there are some things we have to surrender to Jesus over and over and over again because we get unstuck, but then we get restuck, and have to surrender to Jesus again to get unstuck again. You got to keep at it. After Naaman is healed, he says, "Now I know. Now I know that there is no god in all the world except in Israel." So he's had a changed worldview. And he says, let me be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. Now basically what he's saying is he's gonna take a bunch of dirt back from Israel, build an altar in Syria to, wor- to show everyone that he now worships the God of Israel, which is a bold move, right? Because they don't do that in Syria. He says, I'm going back to my country. I'm going back to my job and represent God there in a culture that does not acknowledge him. In other words, healing for Naaman is not a one-shot deal. Getting unstuck is not a one-shot deal. He is prepared to follow God through the long haul and just keep at it. Pastor and uh, former lawyer Stephen Foster talks about when he went to college at Oxford in England and he had this dream of making a difference as a Christian in that environment. But when he got there, all of his friends that he made turned out to be non-Christian, which was fine, but he also wanted some Christian community, so he joined this thing called the Christian Union Club, but didn't tell any of his friends about it because he was embarrassed to admit that he was a Christian. And at the first Christian Union meeting that he went to, they decided to sing together a cappella. There was only 15 of them, and he said none of them could carry a tune, right? And they just sounded terrible, and he's thinking to himself, this could not get any more awkward than this. Well, right then, one of the guys in the group said, you know what, we should open the divider wall to, between us and the next room so they can hear us sing in the next room, right? Which they did, right? And kept singing. Well, the next room was the dining hall. And so, and all of Stephen's non-Christian friends were there just looking at him like, what are you doing, dude? And this sounds terrible. And you know, just, it was embarrassing to him. Well, then he was asked to join a legal society, but that, but that society met on Sunday morning, which meant he couldn't go to church. But he joined it anyway. And by the end of that first year, he said he felt sad, he felt discouraged. He'd gone to change the culture, but the culture had changed him because he cared more about his success and his image than he did about making a difference. And he felt stuck spiritually for sure, but also emotionally because he wasn't being true to himself. And yet again, yet one more time, his insecurity and need to be, and need for other people's approval had paralyzed him. Well, after about a year of this, he went to this Christian retreat and felt Jesus' presence in a very real way, felt loved by Jesus, felt the power of the Holy Spirit kind of enter him, and this thought in his head, the power that is within me is greater than the power of any university culture anywhere. So he went back to school with a different attitude. He got more involved in that Christian union thing and used his leadership to help them do better events than just singing badly to people, right? He got baptized and invited all of his non-Christian friends to come and see so that they would know that he was a Christian. And then he had this thought, you know, it's unfair that people can't be in this law society if they also wanna go to church. But rather than just get stuck there or just end up being a victim or complaining and sort of passively, he decided to do something about it and he ran for president of the law society and he won. And at the first meeting of the term, he said, I don't think we should meet on Sunday mornings anymore. And they said, but we have always met on Sunday mornings. And Stephen said, I understand that, but um, I'm the president, and it's not convenient for me. And they said, well, why? And he said, well, I want to go to church. And they said, oh, church. Oh, we never thought of that. But yeah, I guess that's right. You should be able to go to church. So they changed the meeting of the law society. And then he persuaded them to start getting involved in issues of justice and poverty, particularly to help people in poverty who need legal assistance but couldn't afford it, which most of them in that society found way more fulfilling than just talking about case histories. He was stuck in insecurity and fear of what others thought of him, but he experienced Jesus' supernatural power that made him fearless, was willing to risk his image of success for something bigger, something greater, did what Jesus told him to do and kept at it and became a difference maker and grew spiritually. He got unstuck. Got unstuck spiritually, but also got unstuck emotionally because he had conquered his fear of what other people thought of him. That that slavery that he was in, worrying all the time what other people thought of him, he'd conquered that. So what's stuck in your life? And how can you rely on Jesus? Lay down your success for something greater. Do what he says to do and keep at it because here's the thing, Jesus loves us just as we are, not as we should be, but he also loves us enough not to leave us where he found us. He moves us, he changes us, he takes us on a journey. Jesus has a bias for action. And he is the God of action. He is the God of motion. He is the God of healing, transformation, change, and of hope. And he will not leave you stuck. He will not leave you alone. He will move you forward. He will make you whole. Because with Jesus, we are never stuck. With Jesus, it is always forward march. So Lord, thank you that you move us and change us and shape us. So Jesus, where we are stuck, unstick us. Jesus, where we are paralyzed, would you get us moving again? Show us those places. Help us to hear what you tell us to do, your commands, through scripture or through other people, Lord, so that we can move forward. And please, Holy Spirit, empower us to do just that so we can be changed into your glory, into your image, and we will give you all of our thanks and praise. In your name, Jesus. Amen.